Well, just to recap, a brief reminder of where we're at in the book of Luke, because I think this is very important to see how our text unfolds tonight. You know, last week, Pastor Luke, he looked at the second half of chapter 19 in the book of Luke, and here we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem. We see the triumphal entry where he is declaring through that entry that he is the Messiah. We see him then weeping over the city of Jerusalem and really weeping over the entire nation of Israel. And then near the end of the chapter, we see him cleansing, really taking over the temple. This would have created some of the highest tension possible between Jesus and between the religious leaders, the religious elite of that time. And it says at the end of chapter 19 that the chief priests and scribes were seeking to destroy him, to destroy Christ, but they could not. And that was because of the people, the crowds, the people were hanging on to every word of Jesus. And so we're really nearing, or we might even be at the climax of this confrontation between Christ and between the religious leaders. That Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He's declared his messianic intent that he has all of the crowds, and he's really thrown down the gauntlet to the religious elite. And there's nothing more that they can do. And so that's where we're at when we enter here into chapter 20. We're going to cover the first 19 verses of chapter 20 tonight. We just have two different sections to look at as we look at this passage. These two sections are the ask, so we're going to look at the ask, and then the answer. So we have the ask and the answer. First up is the ask, the ask. Luke 20, verses 1 and 2. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? And so the games of trying to trick Jesus are over. They're no longer coming up and asking questions to try to get him in a trap. Instead, we see the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders all coming together to confront Jesus. Now, these would be the three types of people that would make up the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin. This would be really the religious elite of Israel. This would be the supreme court over all of Judaism. So this is a serious confrontation. And they aren't asking him any trick questions. Really, they're coming to him and they want to know by what authority is he doing these things? Who gave him to the authority to enter into Jerusalem like the Messiah? Who gave him the authority to teach the people and to preach the gospel in the temple? And in this context, they want to know who gave him the authority to take over and to cleanse the temple. And Jesus, he could have answered this question really in a variety of ways. He could have answered it differently. He could have answered it with a similar statement to what he told his disciples, his followers in Matthew chapter 28. He could have said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He could have said that, but he didn't. He could have answered in a similar fashion how Paul describes Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 1. He could have said, I am the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by me, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through me and for me. And I am before all things and in me, all things hold together. 
But he didn't say that either. Or he could have answered as he did in John chapter 8, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Clearly referencing back to when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, claiming full divinity. But he didn't do that, he didn't do that either. You know, in this situation, if he would have provided any of those answers, if he would have clearly stated the authority and the divinity that he possessed, more than likely they would have found him guilty of blasphemy and they would have tried him and had him crucified before it was his time. So instead of any of those statements, he asked them a question. So they come to him with a question and he asks them a question. Verses three and four. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? Now, this is not a delay tactic by Jesus. It's not a way to try to distract the religious elites that they forget the question that they ask. Rather, Jesus is pointing back to John the Baptist. And by doing so, he's allowing the opportunity for the religious elite to answer their own question. Now, the religious leaders, they had rejected the prophecy of John the Baptist. They had rejected the teaching, the proclamation of John the Baptist. And they had re rejected his baptism. We know this from Matthew's description of John the Baptist and his interaction with the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 3. It says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so it's clear that the religious leaders, they were not submitting to John's call to repent and to display that repentance through baptism. And John, he knew this as he refers to them as snakes. He calls them a brood of vipers. They were not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, they were trusting in their heritage, trusting in their knowledge. Their hearts were not broken. There was no desire to confess sin. And so in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is asking them if John's baptism, if that was from heaven or if that was from man, if this baptism that they have rejected, did this come from heaven or was it actually from man? And then we see the conundrum that the religious leaders are in after Jesus asks them this question. In Luke 20, verses 5 and 6, it says this. They discussed it among themselves. If we say, from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin, all the people will stone us. 
because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they know that they can't say that John's baptism is actually from heaven because they weren't baptized by him. They didn't submit and come under his teaching. They didn't acknowledge their need to repent as John proclaimed. So if they said from heaven, that would indicate that they were disobedient to God because they didn't listen to one of his prophets. But at the same time, they couldn't say that John's baptism was from man because they knew that the Jews held John to be a prophet sent by God. And so if they denied that, they feared that the people would stone them. And so they are stuck. They're stuck in that question. They're stuck between humbling themselves before God and their fear of man. There's no true fear of God with the religious elite. There's only fear of man. So after convening, huddling together, they come back to Jesus in verse 7. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So with this question that Jesus asks, Jesus is, he's certainly implying that his authority is directly from God, but they've refused to believe him. Just as John's authority was directly from God and the religious leaders refused to believe him. But he puts the onus on the hearer, the hearer of that question to make that decision. He doesn't come out outright and say it. And so his first response to their ask is to ask them a question. However, his full response to that question, it doesn't end there. It takes us into our second section, which is the answer. The answer. And so immediately after declaring that he's not going to answer their question, it says this in verse 9. Now he began to tell the people this parable. So we can assume from this that this parable is going to be related to the religious elite. It's going to be related to the Sanhedrin. It's going to be related in some way to their question. We also get a hint to this if we jump all the way down to verse 19. It says, Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour, because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So we have some context for this parable that we're going to look at. We have the context of the question of the religious leaders that they've asked Jesus. We have some context in chapter 19 as Jesus has come in and declared his messianic intent, the triumphal entry, and clearing out the temple. And so we have this context. But this is a pretty complex parable. You know, Kenneth Bailey, he's a Middle Eastern New Testament author and lecturer. He says this about this parable that we're going to look at. He says, to summarize, this great parable is nearly impossible. It opens avenues of thought and action that lead in many directions. This is why Dan and Luke left town the same weekend. <laughs> but you could listen to five different messages from five different pastors and be left with five different main points or things that you would leave with. And I think that that's great. I mean, the word of God is rich, and this is really a meaty parable. So as we work through this parable, there's going to be a lot of different moving pieces. I think that we're going to see some biblical literary devices. We'll see some Old Testament references, both directly and indirectly. And I don't want us to get lost, probably more so I don't want to get lost. We're just going to work through slow and steady. Before we get into the literary structure of the parable, I thought that it would be helpful if we just define who each of the persons in the parable is, who they represent, people in the land. And so hopefully, uh, as we work through the parable, it'll become a little bit more obvious, but just putting this out ahead of time so you can jot this down. 
So we have this little chart, and this has um, the, the person or the item in the parable and what it represents. And so we have the, we're going to look at the vineyard owner. This represents God, the Father. We have the vineyard. This is going to represent the nation of Israel. The tenant farmers. These are the religious leaders in Israel. The servants. These are the Old Testament prophets and possibly, maybe even probably, John the Baptist as well given his question. Then we have the beloved son. This is Jesus Christ. And there isn't a ton of debate about this. Maybe where you'd find the most debate is that some would say that the tenant farmers represent all of Israel, that they'll be replaced by the church. That seems, at least in this parable, parable to be a bit of a stretch. It doesn't jive with how the religious leaders respond in verse 19. With those characters defined, we're going to move on to a little bit of the literary structure of this parable the literary structure of this parable. And so many people see this parable laid out with a chiastic structure. Chiastic structure. And this is a literary structure where ideas are presented. So ideas are presented sequentially. And then their variants, their variants are presented in reverse order. And so we have just a really simple thing. So A, B, and then the variant of B, the variant of A. And that may be confusing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an example and I need a little bit of crowd participation. So I'm going to say the A and the B of a pretty common phrase. And you're going to tell me what the variant is going backwards. So the first is this. This is secular. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. So when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's chiastic structure. Here's a biblical example. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled Exactly. So whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So that is a chiastic structure. Now, when there is a climax or a main point of either a narrative or a parable, this doesn't come at the end. So it doesn't go A, B, B, A, C. Rather, the climax or the main point comes right in the middle. So we have A, B, C, so the climax of the story or the main point, and then the variants come after that. And so a biblical example would be the story of Noah and the flood account. This is a ridiculous chiasm. But if you go, if you want to go into Genesis chapter 6, verse 10 through chapter 9, verse 19, you can see the chiastic structure that goes like that. You have Noah, the top and the bottom, and then all these different things. And then at the very middle, so point P, would actually be the main point of this, the entire flood narrative. This would be Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. And the main point is this, that God remembers Noah. You can see it building up. God remembers Noah and then tapering back off. And so this is something, at least from a literary standpoint, that we aren't too familiar with. But it is helpful to see this all throughout the scriptures. And so in Luke 20, here is the general layout of the parable. We're going to see this. You see, we have a vineyard that gets rented. So the vineyard gets rented, and then the servants are sent. So servants are sent, they're beaten, and they're kicked out three different times. And then there is a decision to send the son. So the vineyard owner, he makes a decision to send his son alone and unarmed. And then the tenant owners, they see the son, and they kick the son out. They beat him, and they actually kill him. And then this vineyard is rented to others. It's rented to other 
tenants. And so when we see the structure laid out, we see that the climax of the, of the story is not typically where we would find the main point sequentially. It's not the death of the son or the destruction of the tenants. Rather, the climax of the story is the decision of the landowner, the vineyard owner, to send his beloved son alone and unarmed. Additionally, for context, when Jesus shares this parable, the minds of the hearers would immediately go to Isaiah chapter 5, which is known as the song of the vineyard. So this is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 7. And this actually also has a chiastic structure. If we put this up, so there's a vineyard planted. If you want to flip to that in your Bibles, you can look at it, jot it down, look at it later. Vineyard is planted, and it's expected to yield good grapes. Rather, it yields wild grapes, and so the vineyard is destroyed. So it follows a very similar chiastic structure. However, one of the main differences between Isaiah chapter 5 and Luke chapter 20 is that in Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard owner is actually working the ground himself. He's there working the ground. But in Luke chapter 20, the vineyard owner, he lives a distance away. This is a pretty major difference. What this allows in the parable is it allows the vineyard owner to send his servants, one, two, three. And it allows the vineyard owner to send his son. And so with some of these things in place, we're just going to work through this parable verse by verse. And so hopefully some of that context and some of that structure is going to help us as we get into this parable. So Luke chapter 20, verse 9. Now he began to tell the parable, sorry, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. Now, this type of business situation was not abnormal at all. Many wealthy people, they own land, they own vineyards that were a distance away. So this would not have been a foreign concept to them. But we have a wealthy landowner. He owns a vineyard. And he lives in a distant country. And he leases it out to tenants who are going to work the land and hopefully produce fruit, produce grapes. And then it says this in verse 10. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So it comes time for the harvest, and so naturally, the landowner, he sends his servant to the land to reap some of the fruit, to receive some of the grapes. But instead of the landowner, sorry, instead of the tenants giving the servant some of the grapes, they beat up the servant, and they send him away. And so this would have uh, not been what the owner expected. He didn't expect for his servant to be beaten up and sent away empty-handed. And right then there could have been a very large issue or confrontation between the landowner and the tenant farmers. But that's not the case. The story continues in verses 11 and 12. He, being the landowner, sent yet another servant. But they beat that one too, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. So we see an escalation of the three servants. The first one was beaten and sent away. The second was beaten and treated shamefully and sent away. And the last one is actually wounded. So beaten and wounded and then thrown out. Other translations say cast out. Not just sent away, but cast out. So these servants are most likely a reference to Old Testament prophets that have been treated shamefully by the nation of Israel. At this point in the story, all of the, all of the listeners would have understood what the vineyard owner could have done. 
He's had multiple servants that have been beaten on land that he owns, that he is leasing out. He could have sent people to go and arrest the violent men and bring them back and put them to justice, possibly have them executed. He certainly would have been angry at what has transpired with his servants. So the, list, the listeners would be wondering, how is the vineyard owner going to respond? What is his anger going to produce? Certainly he's going to have the tenant farmers killed, right? This is at the climax of the story. But what happens? Luke 20, verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. This is not what the listeners would have expected. To have three servants beaten and sent away empty-handed, you're going to send your son, your beloved son, to a distant country, alone, unprotected, to meet with vicious tenant farmers who have shown no fear or respect for the vineyard owner. But this is exactly the decision that the landowner makes. In his anger, in the face of injustice, he responds with patient grace. And this is also Jesus beginning to answer the question of the religious elite, of his authority. His authority is from his father who has sent him the beloved son, to a distant land. So what happens? What happens when the landowner sends his son? Verse 14. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. Two things to note in this verse. The first is the statement, they discussed it among themselves. They discussed it among themselves. And most people see this as a direct reference by Luke, the writer, back up to verse 5, where the religious leaders discussed it among themselves. So I think we have the two side by side. One more. Oh, nope. Maybe not. If you put verse 5 and verse 14 side by side, you'll see that when they discussed it among themselves, that more than likely Luke is referencing back to the religious leaders. And so it points explicitly to the connection between the tenant farmers in the parable and the religious leaders of Jesus's day. Not only that, but in the, in the parable, when they discuss it among themselves, what do they decide to do? They decide to kill the son. And the similarities are astounding. The second thing to observe is the statement, let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. I've always found that a little bit strange. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. I didn't understand how killing the son of the landowner would prompt the landowner to give the land to the tenant farmers as an inheritance. However, as I was looking into this, according to the Mishnah, which was an authoritative collection of oral Jewish law, there were squatters' rights in ancient Israel. Squatters' rights. This would apply to houses, to cisterns, to olive presses, to irrigated fields or vineyards, and to slaves. If any of these things were secured by occupation for three consecutive years, the ownership, the possession would pass. And so in this story, the tenant farmers, they're hopeful that they can maintain physical possession of this vineyard for three years and really secure legal ownership. So that's just an interesting observation because that section of verse 14 always confused me. Continuing on, verse 15 confirms what we all know is going to happen. It confirms the inevitable. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
So the tenant farmers, they see the son coming. They recognize that he is the heir. They throw him out of the vineyard and they kill him. Now some would say that throwing the son out of the vineyard and killing him would point to Jesus being killed outside of the city. That may be the case. I mean, Jesus was killed outside of the city, but more than likely the explanation is that if they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, that would not defile the grapes. So they would still be able to sell the grapes for a profit versus if they killed him inside of the, of the vineyard, the grapes would be defiled and they would not be able to sell the grapes. So this is the inevitable thing that the son of the landowner, that he's been killed by the tenants. Verse 15 continues. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, that must never happen. But he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Again, in verses 15 to 18, there's so many direct and indirect references going on. For starters, in verse 17, Jesus is quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22. And if you were to flip to Psalm 118 in your Bible, you'd see that it sits in the middle of a larger passage of Scripture, verses 19 to 28, if you want to jot that in your notes. And that passage of Scripture creates multiple references, multiple features that appear in Jesus' triumphal entry just the day prior into Jerusalem. So Jesus is tying it all together. The triumphal entry a day prior was Psalm 118, and then the cornerstone rejected in Psalm 118 with the killing of the son by the tenant farmers in the parable. And these details, would, they would not have been missed at all by the original audience as Jesus is telling this parable. And then to add to that, verse 18 in Luke 20 is a reference back to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, it says this. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Again, Isaiah chapter 8. Just three chapters after Isaiah chapter 5, where the vineyard song is located, that Jesus models his parable after earlier in Luke chapter 20. So we see there's so many different literary tools and devices going on. It truly is amazing. And then the scene concludes with this description in verse 19. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable about them, but they feared the people. You know, the, the religious leaders, they were not dumb. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying, both directly and indirectly. They knew that he was talking about them, that they were the tenant farmers in the parable, that their ancestors had rejected the prophets, that they had rejected John the Baptist, that the beloved son had been sent and was going to be killed, that they would have their oversight of the vineyard stripped away from them, and they would be judged. They knew what Jesus was implying with this parable. So bring it full circle. These religious leaders, they come to Jesus. They ask him a question about his authority. 
By what authority is he doing these things? Specifically, by what authority is he clearing out the temple? Then Jesus, he tells a parable that leaves no doubt in the minds of all of the listeners and especially the religious leaders that Jesus is claiming that he is the cornerstone, that he is the Messiah, and that he's being rejected by the religious leaders. He's being rejected by the religious leaders of the day when they should instead be embracing him as Messiah that these leaders, they will be punished. In this parable, Jesus telling this parable, it didn't calm their frustrations. It wasn't like they were frustrated with Jesus before, shaking their fists at him, and now they're calmed down. Rather, it's increased all the more. The Jewish religious elite at this point are dead set on killing Jesus of Nazareth. So what do we do with this passage? What do we do with this parable? Well, there are a few things as I've just been reading through it and studying through it and looking at it that kind of kept coming up. And I don't know if I'd label them necessarily application, but rather just some different concluding thoughts, things that we can pull from this. There's so much beyond this, but just three things. One, Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all authority. This is the first thing challenged by the religious elite in the passage. Who gave you this authority, they asked. We know from scripture that Jesus has all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. He created and he sustains the world. He created and he sustains you and me. He rules and reigns over all of his creation. And his authority goes beyond the wealthy landowners in the parable, that there are no squatters' rights when it comes to Christ. He is and will always be sovereign. So that's number one, Jesus has all authority. Number two, God is gracious in response to sin. God is gracious in response to sin. In the parable, the landowner was angry, had every right to be angry, had every right to bring justice to the tenant farmers after they beat the first servant, the second servant, the third servant. But instead, what does he do? He offers up his beloved son. He sends his beloved son to the tenant farmers. In the same way, our sin before God, it demands punishment. And God would be perfectly justified to damn us to hell for all of eternity. We are no different than the tenant farmers in this parable. Through our sin, we have crucified Jesus Christ. But the Bible says that God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In Romans 5, 8, it says that God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So his response to our sin is grace. That's the ultimate display of his grace in response to sin and injustice, that God has sent his beloved son. That is the climax of the parable. That's the climax of all of the scriptures that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ. So that's number two, God is gracious in response to to sin. Then lastly, number three, don't reject the cornerstone. Don't reject the cornerstone. Even though God responds to our sin with grace, that grace is displayed through the death of Jesus Christ, that the wrath of God was carried out on the Son on the cross, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. If you fall on that stone, you will be broken to pieces. If that stone falls on you, it will shatter you. It will crush you. Either way, the stone wins. If you reject the cornerstone, you will endure the judgment of God. 
And the religious elite, they rejected John's baptism. They rejected the call to repent. And they rejected Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. But you guys have an opportunity to embrace and submit to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and to trust in Christ for salvation. Because if you reject the cornerstone, there's nothing for you but the wrath of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction. God, we recognize that we are the tenant farmers. We have crucified Christ by our sin. Lord, our sin in thought, word, and deed. We sinned against an almighty God, Lord. But in your grace, Lord, in your love, your mercy, Lord, in your eternal knowledge, sovereignty, Lord, you sent your son, your beloved son, alone and unarmed to this earth. He lived a perfect life and he went to the cross on our behalf. He endured the wrath of God for our sake, that we can be made right with you, Lord. I pray that we would see the cornerstone, we'd see Jesus Christ, or that we would worship him as Messiah, as King, as God, as Lord. Lord, we need your help to do that. We need your spirit to stir our hearts awake, to allow us to see and hear rightly. God. And so, just praise you for that. Lord, pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.